0: to no better death the podcast that knows while you can die no better death than your own that doesn't mean we can't look for the unusual and the noteworthy in the deaths of others each episode we'll take an in-depth look at some out of the ordinary deaths and the events surrounding them this show will contain explicit language and graphic details i am your host sick grayson How's it going, everyone out there in podcast land? Uh, I'm doing okay, I suppose. Uh, don't really have much for the intro stuff. No stories of the Grayson household or headlines. The wife and kids are in Kansas for Thanksgiving at my wife's mother's house. I'm at home, and my mom is back in the hospital having just had another stint put in her heart. So that's two heart attacks and two or maybe three stints in like a month. But that's what a lifetime of fried food and meth will get you. With that, I'm just going to jump into the meat of the show. Thanksgiving is upon us, and that marks the official beginning of the yearly holiday season spike in American mortality rates. The most wonderful time of the year is also the deadliest. You'd think it would be during the summer, you know, when it's nice and warm, everyone gets out, parties, drinks, gets in the water, blows up fireworks, that time of year, but no, this uh, country is its deadliest during the cold holiday season. Doctors have long known that the overall U.S. mortality rate annually spikes around Thanksgiving and remains elevated through the winter. Some of that's because of seasonal effects like colder weather and spreading the flu, things like that. But Thanksgiving sticks out as an especially dangerous day and there are two major culprits, car accidents and coronary events. Data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration showed that in 2012 there were more car-related deaths on Thanksgiving Day than any other day in the year. Many of these deaths were attributed to drunk drivers and passengers not wearing their seatbelts. See, what do I always say? Put your seatbelt on. The hazardous winter weather conditions also affect uh, the possibilities of getting into an accident. For the 2017 season, the agency predicted expected 421 deaths and 48,500 injuries. Thanksgiving Day is also the unofficial beginning of heart attack season. The stress of entertaining family members in conjunction with an overindulgent meal can be dangerous for people with high blood pressure or heart disease. A study of 1,986 heart attack survivors showed the chances of having a heart attack quadrupled within two hours of having especially large meals. Plus, people often forget their medications when they're traveling for the holidays and they attempt to engage in strenuous activities such as football or roughhousing with relatives that can also trigger cardiac events. The most treacherous aspects of Thanksgiving involve the kitchen itself. With amateur cooks attempting to hack through carrots, onions, potatoes, other odd shaped foods or the designated turkey carver incorrectly wielding a large sharp knife, a sliced finger seems almost inevitable. But it's the Thanksgiving food itself that presents the most dangers. Turkey, and poultry in general, is often contaminated with salmonella and other dangerous bacteria which can survive incomplete cooking or lurk in the dressing cooked inside the cavity of the bird. And any cutting board or knife that isn't properly cleaned and sanitized is a potential source of danger. Lukewarm side dishes sitting out on the buffet table too long can also cause problems. Of course, all this cooking can cause fires, adding yet another danger to the holiday. From 2014 to 2016, there were at least 2,400 residential building fires on Thanksgiving days, with at least 5 deaths, 25 injuries, and $19 million in property loss. So what can we do to make Thanksgiving safer? Put your seatbelt on, your cell phone down, and don't drink before driving. Push the plate away before the third slice of pie take your meds, avoid arguing with loved ones, and maybe hold off on that game of tag football in the backyard. Also, make sure your food is thoroughly cooked and you have a fire extinguisher nearby. Honestly, I think every American citizen should be required to pass the Serve Safe exam. For those who don't know or have never worked in the food industry, Serve Safe is a restaurant industry certification that requires you pass a test based on your knowledge of proper food handling guidelines like a... Uh, what temperature to cook what foods at for how long and how to keep them safe when cooling them down storing them all that kind of shit basically a test that proves you know how to cook and put away food without making people get sick from it also free tip from your homie Uh, Make sure the meat is thawed before you drop it into deep fryer. If your bird or whatever is frozen when you drop it into five gallons of boiling peanut oil, you're going to have an oil explosion from all the frozen water in the bird hitting the grease, and it's not going to be pretty. But are car crashes, heart attacks, fires, and food poisoning all we have to worry about on Thanksgiving? Not at all. Those are just the few things we have some modicum of control over. But we don't have control over everything. Like people trying to kill us. I've got four stories of murder for you. They all happened on Thanksgiving. We're going to get into that. I do want to say I'm recording in the living room today since the family's gone. I'm not down in my little dungeon, so there might be a little more echo in this week's podcast just because I'm in a bigger room. Next week, I'll be right back down to the basement. Everything will sound like it usually does. Uh, So anyway, getting into the terrifying tales of Thanksgiving terror. Thanksgiving 2017, a Virginia youth pastor, youth pastor, someone who claims to live their life in dedication to God and looking out for the good of his fellow man, someone who injects himself into the lives of community children in the name of the God-man, are we surprised after previous stories from this show? No, we're not surprised. Christopher Goddamn Gaddis, not his real middle name, a Virginia youth pastor has been charged in three murders that occurred on his home Thanksgiving 2017. This is recent. Gaddis, 58, was arrested on Thanksgiving night when officers responded to an alarm at the home. When they arrived, they found a body in the yard and two in the house. Now, Chris Gaddis worked as a high school youth ministries coordinator for Grace Lutheran Church. Uh, and let's play ooh, Let's play a game called Guess What the Church Asked For When They Heard That One of Its Members Had Murdered Three People. Did it ask for A, A Proper Investigation, B, Gun Control, C, Mental Health Awareness, or D, Prayers? Hmm. Ah. I don't know, guys. I'm going to guess A, A Proper Investigation. That seems like it'd be the most logical and helpful option, right? The answer was... Oh, it was D. Prayers. Well, I'm sure those will help everyone who was negatively affected by this tragedy. Just put them all in a truck and back them up to their house, right? They won't have time to think about the void they've been left with for the rest of their lives when they're swimming in all those prayers. Jeanette and Christopher had been married for a decade. They'd known each other in high school and had reunited years later when Jeanette was a mom of two. Everyone saw them as a happy couple, but like every marriage, only they knew what was really going on behind closed doors. Six weeks before Thanksgiving, Jeanette's daughter and her boyfriend came to stay with them. Candace Coons, 30, and Andrew Butthorn, 36, were both physical therapists who had been living in Oregon and recently decided to relocate to Virginia. The couple were staying at the Gaddis home while they planned for their fresh start. There was plenty of room at the sprawling detached home and Jeanette adored having them stay. But as the weeks went by, stepdad Christopher had started to become agitated. Everyone knew Chris as a kind man with a warm laugh and a generous nature. But Christopher wasn't happy about having house guests and thought they'd outstay their welcome. Jeanette, who worked as an estate agent, was desperately trying to keep the peace. She was an outgoing woman who had a friendly word for everyone, but she knew Christopher had a temper. There had been an altercation with a local man a few years earlier. Charges against Christopher were eventually dismissed as they had been for a previous public intoxication offense. So Jeanette was aware he could lose control and with a full house, tensions were rising. In a plea agreement that came together unexpectedly in August 2018, Gaddis pled guilty to three counts of first degree murder and one count of felony use with a firearm in the November 23rd killings of his wife Jeanette his stepdaughter Candace, and her boyfriend Andrew. In accordance with the agreement, Chesterfield Circuit Judge David E. Johnson accepted Gaddis's pleas and sentenced him to 100 years in prison for each of the three murder counts with 45 years suspended on each blah 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 blah. When it came down to it, this guy went to prison for 58 years, and at his age of 58, that's pretty much a life sentence. According to a summary of evidence by prosecutor Kenneth Chitty, dissension had been building between Gaddis and his victims in the days before the killings. On November 21st, two days before Thanksgiving, Gaddis started a confrontation that erupted over spilled wine as family members were playing a board game. It led to Gaddis who had been drinking, shoving his wife and pulling his fist back as if he was going to punch her, but his nephew interceded and quelled the dispute. Investigators learned that Gaddis had issues with his wife's children and didn't want them to stay at the house for more than a few days at a time. The discord escalated over the next 48 hours and reached a boiling point about 6 p.m. on Thanksgiving night, when Gaddis confronted Butthorn and Coons as they were relaxing in a hot tub in the backyard. A home surveillance camera recorded the encounter. Shaking his finger, Gaddis demanded they leave at once. But his wife intervened and recorded with her cell phone his conversation with the couple and then her angry exchange with him as he walked away. At about 11.15 that night, Gaddis went upstairs, retrieved his Taurus 45 caliber semi-automatic pistol along with three fully loaded magazines and walked back downstairs as the others were playing a board game in the kitchen. When they saw Christopher at the doorway, he raised his weapon, put his finger on the trigger, and fired. Terrified Candace started to video the scene, but undeterred, Christopher kept firing his weapon. First, he shot Jeanette, and she fell to the ground, fatally wounded. Then he fired bullets into his hysterical stepdaughter. The phone captured screaming, then the desperate moment when Andrew scrambled behind the kitchen table and started begging Christopher for mercy. I'll go out, he cried. I'll leave. It's what Christopher wanted. Well, originally, anyway. He wasn't about to stop what he was doing now. In a desperate attempt to escape, Andrew ran through the house and out the front door, but Christopher followed. He shot his stepdaughter's boyfriend, and he fell down dead outside the house in the garden. Neighbors heard gunfire, and the house's security alarm went off, which sent a local patrolling officer to the house. When the officer arrived at the scene, he saw a body on the lawn, and Christopher was sitting on his front porch step. The officer made him lie face down on the ground before handcuffing him. Christopher didn't attempt to resist and informed him two more bodies were inside. The officer reported to his colleagues over the radio, I have one detained. Be advised, he shot three people, one male suspect on the ground. He's got two gunshots in the stomach. We've got two females down in the kitchen. As backup rushed to the scene, Christopher claimed he had acted after his family ganged up on him. They're probably all dead, he said. They all came after me. In killing the three, Gaddis emptied his gun, firing all 11 rounds. Another fully loaded magazine was found on the kitchen floor and a third loaded magazine was later found in his pocket. Some of the recorded disputes leading up to the killings were recovered by investigators and played in court. Jeanette's cell phone revealed a bounty of information. Coons' cell phone had been recording as well when she was shot and killed and it captured a brief image of butthorn crouched behind the table begging to be let go. Defense attorney John Rock Charlie submitted a photo of bruises to Gaddis's chest that Gaddis claimed were caused by his wife assaulting him during the confrontation 2 days before the killings. Rock Charlie also noted that after the hot tub confrontation on Thanksgiving night, Gaddis returned to his upstairs bedroom and with his window open, listened to them as they belittled him in his mind. This built up over 48 hours, the attorney said, adding that Gaddis had earlier tried to encourage Butthorn and Coons to leave to defuse the situation. "I'm sorry you stepped into a bad situation," Gaddis wrote in a text message to Butthorn. In other text messages sent hours before the murders, Gaddis has went so far as to fake pleading for his life in text messages to everyone to make it look like the shootings would be in self-defense. I'm gonna read you these text messages and it sounds like the dude was planning this. This wasn't a reaction to an attack. No one was attacking him. This all happened over days and really apparently weeks if what was really bugging him was the kids being there. They'd been there for weeks. This was building up. This was premeditated. He knew at some point he was going to do something. If he wasn't, he wouldn't have done this. Around 9.40 p.m. that night, Christopher texted Jeanette's phone. Please, please stop threatening me. I'm so scared. Please leave me alone. I am in fear of my life. I feel you want to kill me. Please let me live. One minute later, he texted, I just want to live. Please, please. That was followed by other messages. Stop telling me you want to kill me. Stop scaring me. I'm so afraid. Over the next 13 minutes. At 9.58, Gaddis wrote, You're hurting me. And then, Please don't come in my room to hurt me at 10 after 10. The barrage of messages continued. Gaddis wrote, Please don't come after me. You want to hurt me. I'm so scared. You and Candy want to kill me. And these messages went on until after 10.30, at which point Jeanette texted uh, Christopher's nephew and sent him some of the text messages saying, hey, this dude's over the edge, we've left him alone. He's doing some kind of mind games. Uh, And the nephew, who doesn't, is never named in any of the articles I read. He tells him to be careful. I don't know what he's doing, but I think you two should stay somewhere else if you can. This is a very strange message. I don't believe he's scared at all. I don't know why he would say that. I won't message him. For Candy, Adam, and your sake, I really think you should stay somewhere else. Exasperated with Gaddis's text, the nephew wrote Gaddis's wife at 1106. The more I learn about my family on that side, the less I want anything to do with it. Gaddis had stopped sending text by then, so he does this whole weird message thing that he sends to his wife. The wife contacts the nephews like, what the fuck? The nephew says, get out. And after that, nothing from Chris. Uh, The next text Jeanette got was at 11.27 p.m. telling her that her home security system had reported an alarm. But that message went on red because she was already dead. Gaddis's guilty pleas came just over seven weeks after a judge ruled against a defense motion to suppress incriminating statements the defendant made to police just after they arrived at his home and found him sitting on the porch. The defense argued the statements should not be allowed at trial because Gaddis made them before being read his Miranda rights but the officer who was first to arrive testified that he detained Gaddis without placing him under arrest because he was attempting to get an understanding of the situation before reading his rights. Prosecutors had argued that in an emergency, a suspect can be handcuffed and placed in investigative detention prior to an officer reading a person his rights. Gaddis's remarks were recorded on Officer N.C. Fraser's body camera after he arrived about 11.30 the night of the murders. Prosecutors played the body cam video at Gaddis' preliminary hearing in April and again at his suppression hearing June 25th. Adam Coons, who lost his mother and sister in the killings, said most family members, including the Butthorns, are satisfied with Wednesday's outcome. They wanted justice done as well as swiftly as possible, Coons said. With that in mind, I think that was done today. As we see it, he's going to live out the rest of his life in prison, and that's what we wanted. Coons said his mother and Gaddis had been married for about 10 years, and they were very happy to have discovered one another because they went to high school together and they met at a family reunion. So for some time, yes, they were happy, but there were also problems that came with that happiness. Coons, who lives in Los Angeles, said after he was told his family had been killed, he began connecting the dots after getting over the initial shock. It was almost like I already knew what had happened and by whom, he said. There was something deep down that was not surprising. So damn, there was a brother, Adam, who didn't show up, stays in L.A. for the holiday or whatever, and, I mean, who knows, had he been there, maybe he'd have been able to stop this guy, right? That's, that's gonna be one of those things that eats at this kid man and it sucks for somebody to be put in that position like i feel for him you know he's, he's gonna sit there the rest of his life wondering if i had just gone to mom's that thanksgiving would i have been able to stop it would my family still be here and never any real explanation for why he did it other than just being pissed that his wife's kids had been staying there for a few weeks check it out. my stepdad's a fucking asshole too my wife and i we tried moving to louisiana uh, we were there for about almost a month and shit came to a head with my stepdad like I totally get it some people don't want other people in their space but also if you don't want someone's kids around don't marry someone who has kids if he didn't want kids staying he should have never married a woman who already had kids that's that's part and parcel with being with someone you have to put up with their family right none of the articles i read gave any kind of explanation about why he really did it this dude just got pissed that there were too many people in his house for too long went downstairs and murdered his fucking family on thanksgiving and is going to spend the next 58 years in prison for it i hope they put him in an overcrowded cell wouldn't that be the greatest fucking justice put him in a tiny ass cell with about six people they usually only hold two but they need to make a special cell and just cram five or six of them in there with him so he can get pissed that there's too many people in his cell. Fuck this guy. Not to be outdone though, one Paul Michael Murhig murdered four family members in Jupiter, Florida, Thanksgiving 2009. I've been waiting 20 years to do this, 35 year old Paul Murhig was overheard muttering amid a shooting rampage that killed four and wounded two others on Thanksgiving 2009. Merhig's extended family had gathered at a home in Jupiter, Florida, owned by Merhig's cousin Muriel Sitton and her husband Jim. After chowing down on a traditional Thanksgiving meal, they would gathered around the piano and sung Christmas songs to the delight of six-year-old Michaela Sitton, who was tucked into bed soon after. It was as wholesome as you can imagine until Paul, who'd been acting normally all night, produced a gun and began fulfilling a fantasy he'd apparently had since he was a teenager. He was seemingly merciless in his cold-blooded execution of his twin sisters, his aunt, and his cousin's daughter at the end of a Thanksgiving dinner celebration. A relative who survived the attack described seeing an evil, haunting look on Murhig's face. Murhig methodically picked off his victims. He shot his aunt, Raimonda, it's Raymond with an E on the end, Ramonda Joseph, 76 years old, once in the shoulder and then as her husband Jim cowered on the ground next to her trying to stop the bleeding he held the gun to her chest and fired again blowing a hole in her sternum just fucking hardcore to shoot an old lady point blank in the chest man he then shot his 33 year old twin sisters Carla a real estate agent and Lisa who was pregnant and Lisa's husband Patrick Knight who would survive his injuries another man Clifford Jabara and I couldn't find any information on this guy, he's just like random dude, can't find out if he's a relative or what, was also shot but was just grazed by a bullet. Paul's final victim was six-year-old Michaela who was still sleeping. After shooting her twice and leaving the room, he doubled back and shot her in the head just to make sure she was dead. Jim Sitton, uh, he was one of the owners of the house, doesn't think Murhig planned to kill Michaela, but thinks he became jealous when he saw the family delight in her singing. He tried to snuff out the light. Sidden said. He came into a baby's room, he saw her innocence, and he walked in and purposefully killed her. So... Michaela's dad speculates that this dude was just butt hurt because everybody paid attention to the kid and not him. That's... Man, you gotta be really wired wrong for that to be the thing that sets you off. Which I guess, anybody who's gonna murder this many people, especially relatives, on a fucking holiday, you're wired wrong already. So th- there's no point in trying to make logic where logic doesn't apply. After the murder, Murhig went on the lam for weeks until January 2010 when a tip was called in after an episode of America's Most Wanted. With thoughts of suicide weighing heavily on his mind, He'd been laying low in the Florida Keys under an assumed name, living off the $12,000 in cash he'd withdrawn before Thanksgiving. And this last detail? Kinda hints at premeditation. Dude was probably acting normal the whole day because he was trying to act normal the whole day because he'd been planning this for however long, at least since the day he took the money out, right? He knew he was gonna have to run somewhere. The Palm Beach Post described him as an estranged recluse who'd clashed with his sisters in the past, one had even taken out a restraining order against him a few years earlier. But at that 2009 Thanksgiving, everything seemed calm, at least on the surface. However, court records show in the weeks before the meal, Paul had painstakingly and discreetly spent $2,000 on at least four guns and ammunition in two Broward County gun shops. He had even purchased a scope to attach to a bolt-action Remington 700 rifle. He said he wanted to use it for hunting. Merhig had been asking his parents for days about the Thanksgiving event, but never committed to attending. And his parents never alerted their hosts, Jim and Muriel, that he might be coming. When he called that evening to announce he was on his way, his mother couldn't resist a sinister thought. I hope he doesn't come and kill us all tonight. She actually said this to one of her daughters, uh, Lisa. So the mom, Carol, just straight up said, boy, I hope Paul isn't coming over here to kill us all. The mom, the mom's still alive. So she's giving uh, the recounting of this conversation. Lisa replied to her, it came to my mind, but don't say anything to dad because dad would get upset that we have such ideas. So yeah, mom and Lisa had a talk about, hey, something's up with Paul hope tonight's not the night he turns into a big freaking weirdo but let's not tell dad because he'll get pissed at us well maybe they should have told dad maybe they should have told paul not to come over maybe this like if you have these kind of thoughts you've had issues with somebody not once not twice but a bunch of times and not of any kind of light or funny variety this is if you're thinking this dude might kill me today my brother my son might show up and just kill us all Something's up and you should have distanced yourself from them a long time ago. If you ever have to think that about anyone, but especially a relative, you don't need to have them in your life. And in this instance, look what not having that instinct got them. A elderly relative, two sisters, one of them pregnant, killed, and a six year old child. Man. In October 2011, Murhig pled guilty after making a deal that would spare him the death penalty. He received seven life terms instead. As you might expect, the case caused a huge rift in the family, both emotionally and legally. Merhig's brother-in-law, Patrick Knight, who lost his wife and unborn child, was himself gravely wounded in the shooting, but said he was eager to move on from the tragedy instead of enduring years of appeals. But Michaela's grieving father, Jim Sitton, begged the judge not to accept the deal, even falling to his knees in the courtroom. The Sittens also filed a lawsuit against Murhig's parents alleging that they'd invited him to the gathering without warning the host that their son might be dangerous. If someone brought a rattlesnake or a pit bull to your home without your permission and that pit bull started attacking and killing people, wouldn't you hold that person responsible? That's what this is. We're seeking justice with every means at our disposal. The lawsuit was eventually dismissed in 2012 after it was determined the Murhigs had no legal right or ability to control the actions of their son. But that wasn't the only lawsuit filed in the wake of the murders. Patrick Knight also sued his former in-laws for failing to prevent the killings, including the death of his wife Lisa. Then the Murhigs filed a countersuit against the Sittons, alleging the Sittens were to blame for the bloodbath. To the extent Paul had problems, the entire family knew that, said the Merhiggs attorney, Alan Rawson. If the Sittens were concerned he was going to be a problem that day, then they should have stopped him. It was their house, they should have protected their family, as well as the Merhiggs family, if they were concerned. In the lawsuit the Merhigs also claim that Jim Sitton has defamed them with unfair and untrue statements about the couple by saying they invited Paul to dinner without notifying other members of the family and knowing his reputation for violence. Also named in the lawsuit is Dr. Antoine Joseph whose wife Raimonda was murdered by Merhig. Joseph is Muriel Sitton's father, his sister is Carol Merhig who is Paul's mother, Uh, joseph had apparently treated paul Murhig, uh he was his doctor i assume they mean like psychiatrist or therapist or something and was well aware of his mental instability as was the rest of the family pretty tangled web and now instead of coming together in a time of tragedy these guys are all trying to sue each other point responsibility here and there when at the end of the day it comes down to paul you want to do something pay somebody in prison to murder paul he started the war okay and he won the first battle he murdered four people including a little kid if these guys want justice i mean he didn't did he do anything fair no he walked in on a fucking holiday and shot everybody they don't have to play fair either they want him dead and the courts sent him to prison there's ways to get somebody murked in prison but neither family is to blame for any of this they just got together on thanksgiving and one dude decided to be an asshole Months after the trial, a 35-year-old Merhig seemed shaken by the horrors of his alleged deeds. He called his father collect at his Miami-area home begging for forgiveness. I think about them, he told his father. I think about heaven, you know. I think about them constantly. I don't know how I could have done what I've done to everybody, everybody I've hurt. His father, sounding dry and defeated in a static-filled recording on a jailhouse phone, simply stated we have nothing. You have nothing. It's a total nightmare. Our lives are changed forever. It's impossible, you know, to reconcile what happened with me, Paul said. It's just, it's not even real. I'm not violent. I've never been violent. I'm not a criminal or drug addict. It's just unbelievable what I've done to everybody. Seemingly unaware of the workings of the court system and the scale of the criminal charges that he would face, he once asked a police officer if he would be facing a long process a year two years he asked told that the wait for a trial could be lengthy he wondered what would happen next what about afterwards he asked what's the worst case scenario for this if prosecutors had gotten their way the worst case scenario would have been death but under the plea deal paul is still alive in prison serving his seven life sentences until he dies not the outcome some wanted but better than Paul's desired outcome, which was to sit in a comfy mental institution for the rest of his life. It sounds like everyone in the family knew Paul was a little nuts, knew he had a tendency to violence, and he's sitting in jail talking about, oh, I'm not a violent person. It seems everyone in your family thinks you have violent problems. You have violent tendencies. Like You can't sit here after murdering four people for no reason and say you're not a violent person. You have proven that you are. I don't know. I don't know. It's going to piss me off the more I talk about it. Time for five fast facts about Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving used to be a lot more like Halloween. At the turn of the 20th century, Thanksgiving was a kind of creepy ordeal. Children and adults would dress up in masks and host costume crawls in cities like New York, LA, and Chicago. The tradition of children dressing up as poor people in New York became so popular that Thanksgiving was nicknamed Ragamuffin Day. Two, and I forgot to say one on the first one, I just launched right into it. Two. The author of Mary Had a Little Lamb made Thanksgiving a national holiday. The Continental Congress declared the first Thanksgiving in 1777, but the custom fell out of use around 1815. It wasn't until Seraph Josepha Hale, best known for writing Mary Had a Little Lamb, petitioned several Presidents to make it a national holiday that it actually became one. She finally succeeded in 1863 when President Lincoln issued a proclamation. Three. Thanksgiving is the reason for TV dinners. In 1953, Swanson had so much extra turkey, 260 tons to be exact, that a salesman told them they should package it onto aluminum trays with other sides like sweet potatoes and the first TV dinner was born. Basically Thanksgiving in a box. 4. Of all U.S. states, California consumes the most turkeys on Thanksgiving. And that's not very vegan of you, Callie. I know you got your trendy, bourgeois, blah 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 blahs. Everybody's a vegan. How y'all eating all the turkeys? 5. The day before Thanksgiving, commonly referred to as Black Wednesday or Blackout Wednesday, is the biggest day for bar and liquor sales in the U.S. Likely reasons include the start of the five-day weekend and the large influx of folks who have flocked on their hometowns for Thanksgiving many of whom will not have family obligations until the next day, so they use the day before to pre-game with old friends and basically just get shitfaced before Thanksgiving. Right, two stories down, two to go. Reducing the body count, but perhaps turning up the gore factor, we're going to talk about Joel Michael Guy Jr. and the murder of his parents Thanksgiving weekend 2016 in Knoxville, Tennessee. And if you look up a picture of this dude, he looks like a nut bar. He looks like Andy Milanakis had the worst week ever. 28-year-old Baton Rouge resident Joel Michael Guy Jr. traveled from Baton Rouge, Louisiana back home to Knoxville where he reunited with his three sisters and their parents over turkey and stuffing. It would be the family's last holiday together in that house. In two weeks, Joel Guy Sr. and his wife Lisa planned to move to his late mother's mountain home about 90 miles away. Family members there told the Kingsport Time News that they were looking forward to a Christmas reunion. At the end of the evening, the three daughters who all lived locally returned to their homes while Guy Jr. stayed at the house with his parents. Now, Guy Jr. was an undergraduate in college and still depended on his parents for financial support. Family members told authorities that his parents intended on telling him of their plans to scale back support over the Thanksgiving weekend, so basically he drives up from Louisiana to Tennessee. Uh, and his parents are going to tell him, we're cutting you off and we're also moving away so this home won't be here to come back to. It's unclear what happened next or if the parents even had a chance to tell Guy Jr. that they were cutting him off. Uh, What authorities do know is that the 28-year-old stayed in the home three days longer than he'd planned and that by Sunday afternoon, his parents' home had been turned into what police called a horrific and very gruesome crime scene. At some point between Thursday night And Monday morning, the Knox County Sheriff's Department claims Guy Jr. stabbed and dismembered his parents, then attempted to dissolve their bodies in a mix of liquid fire, drain cleaner, sewer cleaner, hydrogen peroxide, and bleach. I mean, do those things even go together to melt a body? Like, Google. Google. Seriously. Google and Home Depot can take care of so many things for you. During a welfare check Monday after Lisa Guy's employer called the police to tell him that she didn't show up for work, authorities entered the home and discovered a barking dog locked in an upstairs room and the remains of Joel Sr. and Lisa Guy scattered throughout the house. Their dismembered body parts resting in a homemade acidic solution concocted to erase evidence of the crimes that took place. There were signs of a struggle, authorities said, and the scene was so toxic and spread out that it took investigators in hazmat suits all day Monday and Tuesday to process the evidence. That Tuesday night, Joel Guy Jr. was arrested outside his Baton Rouge apartment and charged with first degree murder. Authorities think he worked alone, killing his parents sometime between Thursday night and Saturday afternoon. He stayed in the house with their remains until Monday when he drove his car back to Baton Rouge. Now some reports say he left Sunday night, some said he left Monday, but basically by Monday morning at the latest he was gone. He I guess he got out of there just in time before like really if you're if you're if you didn't show up for work is your boss going to call the cops? It always blows my mind to hear things like this like oh she didn't show up to work or he didn't make it to the bowling league game or like whatever. Like there's these people that give so many fucks about a person. They call the cops 15 minutes into you not being there. I maybe I'm not living my life right. Maybe I don't have the right kind of people around me. But I can't say I've necessarily felt that way about anyone either. If somebody doesn't show up to work, they just didn't show up to work. If a homie doesn't make it to somewhere we were supposed to hang out, they got busy. Like I'm not I'm just not that guy that, you know If maybe if I don't hear from you for like two days, then I start thinking something's up. But I understand people get caught up in whatever they have going on, or maybe you go off on an adventure or something. Not my business to pry. I'm I don't know a single person that would call the cops if I didn't show up somewhere. That's all I'm saying. So it's always weird to me when you get one of these, like, this lady's boss, she doesn't show up for work Monday morning. Sometimes still in Monday morning, he has called the cops and the cops have shown up at her house. That just seems so weird to me. But anyway, by Monday, he killed him sometime between Thursday night and probably Saturday night, or I mean, Sunday night. He leaves Monday morning. Uh, He's arrested by Tuesday. At a news conference, Major Michael McLean with the Sheriff's Department called the crimes very, very rare. It's in the one percentile of homicides in the United States that involve mutilation or dismemberment. It's not something we run across. Usually there's a motivation behind it. In this case, we just don't know what it is. Although family members told authorities about the elder guy's plans to scale back their son's financial support, McLean would not confirm whether that was their son's motive for allegedly killing and mutilating them. Authorities consider it a possible motive. It's unlikely he would have been the recipient of any life insurance on either victim. So they're saying like they don't know if the parents ever told him he's not saying anything, but there was no monetary value in him killing them. The sisters told police that nothing seemed amiss with their brother during Thanksgiving and that there were no family disputes that day. McLean said that authorities are not aware of any history of mental illness and that the suspect has no criminal record. So the dude, despite how bonkers he looks in his arrest picture, his mugshot, Everybody says, no, well, it's like a normal dude, normal day. Everything was fine. This guy's not a criminal. He just something happened. He murdered his family. They told him, right? They fucking told." But also, if you're, this wasn't a teenager or early 20s something. This guy was kind of mid to late 20s, I think, at this point. Uh, 28, 28 years old. So this is a little past that. Still needing mom and dad's support thing. At 28 years old, this guy should be taking care of himself. If he's still, if his parents are taking care of him, something's up. Not sure if it's a mental thing or maybe he just sucks at life thing, but there's something going on. Despite how normal it seems, a 28-year-old isn't living off their parents anymore. Although the acidic solution the victims were found in caused them to suffer excessive decomposition, investigators were still able to identify them. It did, however, make it a little difficult to determine the cause of death. The elder guy suffered multiple vicious stab wounds and was possibly tortured. Not really a lot about what might have happened to the mom. Police waited two days to tell the public about the gruesome killings and the arrest of Joel Guy Jr. because they didn't want to tip the son off that they knew he did this. McLean described the 28-year-old as a college student in Baton Rouge. The sheriff's office told The Advocate, which is some kind of newspaper, that the suspect attended Louisiana State University at one point before withdrawing last year, but an LSU spokesman would not confirm that when the newspaper asked. Neighbors told the advocate that Joel Guy Jr. was a reclusive and quiet person. He lived alone in his apartment, but had previously lived with a roommate. Renee Charles, the sister of Joel Guy Sr., told the Kingsport Times News that she couldn't believe her nephew could be capable of carrying out such brutal killings. We were very shocked that he would do something like this. It's one thing to stab someone, but to do everything that he did to dismember his parents' bodies? She said the family was looking forward to the end of December when they'd all gather for the holidays. We were going to have Christmas again, she told the Times News, We were just fixing to have all of us back together again. And you can tell these people are Southern because up North you're about to do something or you're going to do something. Back in the South, you fixing to do something. We was fixing to hang out at Christmas. As of March 2017, Guy Jr. had been charged with two counts of first degree murder, two counts of abusing a corpse, and two counts of felony murder. Psychologists say that shame around the money likely played a larger role in the killing than the money itself. Guy Jr. remains in jail in lieu of a $2 million bond. His court date is December 3rd, uh, 2018. So this year, this is still going on. Uh, We'll see what happens next month. Uh, We don't know the outcome yet. It sounds pretty open and shut. He did it. It's just a matter of what's the sentence going to be. I don't know if uh, Tennessee has a death penalty. I assume they do. Most southern states still do. So it's going to come down to do we kill this guy, stick him in life in prison, or throw him in a mental institution? And for the last story, and I previewed this one a little bit on Twitter and Facebook, if you're not following us on Twitter or keeping up with the Facebook page, definitely go, go find us there, like us, follow us, subscribe, whatever you do, wherever you do it. Uh, we are no better death on across all outlets, uh, except Twitter's no better death one. Anyway, I teased this story on Twitter. Uh, it's a little different, and really to me one of the most intriguing stories I've covered so far in the 11 episodes of this show. How far is too far when defending yourself in your home? In this case, a man kills two people who broke into his house, but did he have to kill them? Most states provide residents some kind of protection when deadly force is required to protect themselves, their loved ones, and their homes in the event of a break-in or attack. Stand your ground, castle doctrine, dirty hairy laws, whatever you want to call it in whatever state you're in. Courts typically make some sort of concession for such cases. However, if at any point during the incident the threat is removed, the assailants are neutralized, and the threat to life is no longer a concern, the defending party can no longer take deadly force against the intruders. To many, and if I'm being honest, to me as well, what Byron David Smith did on Thanksgiving 2012 in Little Falls, Minnesota, Crossed the line between self-defense and the unnecessary murder of two teenagers who probably just needed a couple months in jail and a probation officer to set them straight. Byron David Smith, a retired security engineering officer with the U.S. State Department, had dealt with his Little Falls, Minnesota home being burglarized several times in as many months. Among the items stolen were thousands of dollars in cash, the watch his father had received after spending nearly a year as a POW in World War II—he had one of those. For ye- this uncomfortable hunk of metal in my ass He had, he had some kind of World War II watch uh, from his dad that was stolen. Medals and ribbons Smith had earned in the Air Force during the Vietnam War, several firearms and jewelry. Uh, so people have been breaking into this guy's house a lot, stealing his shit. He's getting upset. Smith began routinely wearing a holster with a loaded gun inside his home. He installed an alarm system complete with video cameras aimed at several areas around his house and on Thanksgiving Day 2012 he sat in his basement with a rifle and waited. So people have broken into his house multiple times. Uh, The video from this day in particular captures Smith moving his truck from the driveway prior to the break-in that was about to happen to make it look like he wasn't home. This guy moved his car. Then an hour later, two teens in hoodies can be seen casing the place before entering the property. And one report also said they had been seen on video casing his house the night before, but I don't know how true that is. Everything else says this was same day. Two teenagers in hoodies walking around his property, casing before they break into it. So he saw this. He set set up somebody. He didn't know who specifically, but he moved the truck to make it look like he wasn't home since people are watching his house, apparently waiting to break in. He thought today would be a good day to do that. He moves his truck, he sees teenagers casing his house, so he goes into the basement and he waits. And an hour later, he got what he was waiting for. The two teens who had been seen casing the place earlier in hoodies came back to the property. The teens were Haley Elaine Kiefer, 18, and her cousin Nicholas Brady, 17, both of whom were unarmed. Smith had suspected that Kiefer and Brady were one of the people who had broken into his houses previously. Smith had suspected Kiefer and Brady of having been responsible for at least some of the earlier break-ins, and they were later suspected of a robbery of a retired school teacher that had occurred earlier that day. So, them breaking into houses isn't nothing new, they already robbed somebody else this exact day, and then breaking into this guy's house specifically wasn't something new. Now, while Smith sat in his basement, waiting for these people to break in, he had a tape recorder running. There are hours of audio recordings that document his time lying in wait, complete with the sound of breaking glass and the ensuing confrontation. The audio captures the shots fired and Smith's statements during and after the killings. He calls Kiefer a bitch and says, cute, I'm sure she thought she was a real pro. By his own account to police, Smith was in the basement when he shot Brady twice at the top of the basement stairs and once in the face, fatally, after he fell to the bottom of the stairs. Minutes later, when Kiefer entered the basement, he shot her at the top of the stairs. Wounded, she also fell down, and after Smith's rifle jammed, he walked up to her, shot her in the chest multiple times with a twenty-two, dragged her across the floor, dropped her beside her cousin, and then shot her under the chin for good measure. So it, how does it sound to you so far? On one hand, yes, this guy has to do something to defend his house. If he's being broken into multiple times and apparently by the same people, he does need to defend himself and his property. But if you have videotape of someone watching your house, you know they're watching. Then you move your car to make it look like you're not home. When does that become entrapment? This is a setup at a certain point. Yes, these people shouldn't break in, but is, isn't he baiting them? And he also knows they're teenagers. If he if he suspected them having done it previously, he knows he's not dealing with, like, bikers and truck drivers, fucking adults, like, breaking into his house. You know, he knows these are kids. It sounds like a setup to me. As criminal as the breaking and entering into the home is, I mean, this dude moved his truck and just sat there with gun- multiple guns, and video footage, knowing where they were, knowing they were coming, knowing they're coming in, knowing they're unarmed. I mean, and this guy had worked for the State Department, a security engineer. You you can tell by the employer and the job title, that's something more than what it sounds like. This guy could have probably, I don't know what he did, but this sounds like the kind of dude, as a Vietnam War, yeah, I mean, this guy was a Vietnam War vet. Raised by a World War II vet. Security engineer for the State Department. This dude could have beat the shit out of both of these kids just into total submission and then called the cops. Or he could have shot him in the leg and called the cops. But he straight murdered two minors. He knew they were coming, saw him casing the house on security cam. He didn't call the cops at that point. He knew when they were forcing their way into the house... He made no attempt to call the cops. He lied in wait, like a sniper with them in the house, did not call the cops, and picked them off one by one, delivering close range kill shots to the head once they were down. This wasn't self defense, this guy was waiting to murder someone. I would even go so far as to call this an assassination. I get it, you're pushed too far by the other break-ins, but this? This was too much. And then he didn't even call the cops once they were dead. He waited until the next day to notify the police of the shootings, claiming he didn't want to bother the police on Thanksgiving. This guy thinks he's getting away with it. He thinks, oh I'm a decorated blah 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 with a history of blah 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 and uh, you know I'll look like an even better guy if I don't bug him on Thanksgiving. This is clearly self defense. Morrison County Sheriff Michael Wetzel has acknowledged that Brady and Kiefer were there to burglarize Smith's residence. Brady's sister claimed that he had stolen drugs from her home on August 28th in a case that was still under investigation. Now I assume when they say drugs they mean prescription drugs, not illegal drugs because it went to court. Like this guy broke into a relative's his sister's house and stole something. Evidence recovered from the car driven by Brady was linked to a burglary of the residence of a retired teacher the night before he and Kiefer were killed by Byron Smith. Now, another report, as I said earlier, stated that they robbed the teacher that same day, but definitely either Thanksgiving Eve or Thanksgiving Day, these two had already broken into someone else's home. smith's statements to police describe delivering killing shots to the heads of both victims after he had shot them on the stairs and they had fallen to the basement floor wounded in his statement he said that kiefer let out a short laugh after she fell to the stairs or fell down the stairs saying quote if you're trying to shoot somebody and they laugh at you you go again i don't even know what the fuck that means but basically he tried to say that this chick was talking shit to him while she was laying there with bullets in her body the audio tape that uh, Smith had recorded did not have Kiefer saying this instead she cries oh my god in fear just before the kill shot. In police interviews Smith acknowledged firing more shots than he needed to and that he fired a good clean finishing shot into Kiefer's head. The entire incident as I said was captured on tape on the tape smith can be heard rehearsing what he'll say to police and lawyers after the fact so yeah if you listen to this and you're going to listen to it i'm putting it in just in just a second after he killed them he sat in the basement for we don't know how fucking long talking to himself talking shit about the two kids he just murdered and practicing his routine for when he finally does call the cops and for when he does talk to a lawyer it's creepy Luckily, most of the footage isn't available. I don't think we'd all want to sit through it, but we would because we're weirdos that sit around and listen to the stories about murder when we don't have to. Uh, but there are a few minutes of the tape. I pulled it from I pulled the audio from YouTube. The killings are on here, so if you don't want to hear it, you might want to skip ahead about five minutes.
1: In fear, I am not bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess, not like spilled food, not like vomit, not even like, not even like diarrhea. The worst mess possible. And some tiny little respect. I was doing my civic duty. Because the law enforcement system couldn't handle it, and I had to do it. I had to do it. They weren't yelling. I see them as human, I see them as vermin. Is that the reward for being a good person? And if I gather enough evidence, they might be prosecuted. If they're prosecuted, it might go to court. If it goes to court, they might be found guilty. If they're found guilty, they might spend six months, two years in jail. And then they're out, and they need money worse than ever, and they're filled with revenge. I cannot live a life like that. I cannot have that chewing on me for the rest of my life. I, I cannot. I refuse to live with that level of...
0: Legal analysts have stated that the initial shootings most likely would have been justified under Minnesota's laws, but the subsequent shots that were not justified once the threat had been removed. See, what did I say at the beginning of the story? If you shoot somebody and they go down, they're not a threat anymore, you can't just murder them in your house. So if you're aiming to kill, you better pop them in the head first shot, otherwise you definitely look like you murdered someone. Sheriff Wetzel said that the law doesn't permit you to execute someone once a threat is gone. Uh, According to Hamline University School of Law Professor Joseph Olson, the first shot is justified. After the person is no longer a threat because they're seriously wounded, the application of self-defense is over. A number of aspects of the case were noted by police as being inconsistent with self-defense. Smith moved his truck earlier in the day, claiming it was in order to clean his garage. Police argued at his trial that this was an attempt to make the house look abandoned in order to lure in burglars. Also, on the recordings prior to the break-in, he is heard saying, in your left eye, and I realize I don't have an appointment, but I would like to see one of the lawyers here. The prosecution noted that Kiefer was later shot in the left eye by Smith, and that alleged the other statement is a rehearsal for what he would say after the shooting uh, while looking for an, an attorney, which... The fuck. That all sounds weird. This guy sounds like he might not understand some aspects of human interaction, and that's coming from a guy who doesn't understand human interaction. You don't practice. Like, was he really gonna go into the? uh, I'm at the attorney store. I realize I do not have an appointment, but I would like to speak with an attorney. Don't you like look around, find an attorney, and go in and say, "Hey, I want. Can I talk to this attorney?" Some people, man. Other people's children. Uh, following the shootings, Smith captured a number of statements on the tape, including "I am not a bleeding heart liberal. I felt like I was cleaning up a mess." Blah 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 blah. Okay, you all heard it because I dropped in the audio. Smith's recorded statements, the evidence indicating he had planned the shootings, along with the excessive number of shots fired, led to an original charge of second-degree murder. But in April 2013, he was indicted on two counts of first-degree murder. The mail was later set at $50,000, which Smith posted. On April 29, 2014, Byron David Smith was found guilty on two counts of first degree murder with premeditation and two counts of second degree murder after about three hours of jury deliberation. He was immediately sentenced to life in prison without parole. The audio recordings were named by the jurors as the biggest influence on their decision. That was the most damning piece of evidence in my mind, said one juror. That audio recording of the actual killings and the audio recording of Mr. Smith's interview immediately after his arrest pretty much convinced me that we were dealing with a deranged individual. And that's it. Four terrifying tales of Thanksgiving murder, what did we learn? Do we ever learn? If so, what did we learn from this? Do not go home for the holidays. Do not invite anyone over for the holidays and do not break into anyone's home during the holidays. Agree to meet a small group of loved ones that doesn't contain anyone you can't overpower and meet them at a very public place, like a Chinese restaurant. Have some chicken lo mein, some sweet and sour pork, knowing you're not going to get food poisoning. Go home by yourself and lock the fucking door. Boom, you made it out alive. No fires, no drunk drivers, no murderous family members, no no food poisoning, hopefully no heart attacks, nothing. Nice and easy, in and out, and you're home in time to put on jingle all the way and start making plans to survive Krimbus. You may have noticed at the beginning of the episode an advertisement for a, a college or something. Uh... <laughs> Is this where the big bucks come in for a podcaster? I'm getting them ad bunnies now. I'm going to be straight up with you. I get $7 for every thousand times the show is listened to. And with the numbers I hit, I I speculate in about five years, I'll have a tidy little check for $3.18. NoBetterDeath.info is the website for all info on NoBetterDeath. Facebook, Gmail, Twitter, all the places that are places, no better death is there. Follow us, subscribe, like, whatever whatever you do to keep up with it. I don't know, man. I'm making the shit. It's on you guys to keep up with it. Uh, I am still doing the giveaway uh, from November 1st to December 5th. Anyone who leaves an iTunes review is entered in the giveaway to get some very gently uh, near-mint DVD seasons of Heroes, Arrow, True Blood, and the Sarah Connor Chronicles. Uh, So go leave an iTunes review and you're automatically entered in that. But I think really more than anything, tell your friends. Reviews and likes and follows, those are nice and all, but I really do just want people to listen to the show. I don't want ad money. I don't want to be in the fucking top 10 on iTunes because it looks cool or whatever. I'm just a weird dude who's into dark and dead shit, putting something out there for other people that are into dark and dead shit. So if you dig this show, if you are one of the few people listening, just go tell a homie. Uh, If there's a story you'd like to see me cover on the show, you've got personal death-related stories you want to tell, anything you got, contact me, Facebook, Twitter, or email are the best ways. I'll work it in on the show, give you a shout out for uh, hooking us up with some content. You know, the more you give me, the more I can give you. New content uh, go up on Facebook and Twitter every day. uh, The Sick Picks for uh, a song of the day for you to listen to. The Today's in Death, hipping you to death-related information that happened on that day throughout history. Uh, Also, go check out a a few podcasts I've been listening to lately. That's Weird, Keep It Weird, Nightmare on Film Street, Teen Creeps. There's a lot out there, man. There's a a lot of good podcasts out there, so go check out some of them. As always, I am your host, Sick Grayson. Until next time, try not to die.